As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. No Joe again. He can't be asked. I mean, well, he's, he's on annual leave. Um, but you do get Alex and I and we are going to have a big old natter about all kinds of different things. Uh, including, quite weirdly, how he dislikes people eating around him, amongst others. <laughs> That's a weird little five minutes that we do, but it's fun. Before we get to the podcast, we're going to talk about The Athletic. Uh, Alex, we were talking about articles that you enjoyed before we started recording. Would you like to share with the audience? Uh, yes. Um, I'm I'm always a fan of what Tom Warville does um, on uh, tactics and data um, and his lovely little visualizations. There's a really interesting piece um, that was published. Um, well, I'm published now, but I don't know when this is going out because I never know when things are going out. So it'll have been published a few days ago uh, on Leicester and how Leicester City have evolved. Um, obviously, with Ricardo Pereira, long-term absentee, and Ben Chilwell having been sold to Chelsea, fullbacks were a big, big part of how Leicester attacked last season. So Tom's looked at James Justin and Timothy Castagnier and how they've come in and how that's changed the way that Leicester are playing. There's some some stuff about pressing as well in there. Um, but it's just a really good, uh, insightful piece. Um, I, we've we've talked about how crucial fullbacks were to, to Leicester last season before Seb, and I, I know you had issues when they weren't providing as much um, and that that was a significant part of how Leicester fell off. So Tom's had a look at, at how they've adapted and what's working and what isn't. I mean, you said I had issues. I mean, I, I had concerns. Issues makes it sound like it provoked some kind of meltdown in me. Like Several it, times of... you, you despaired about the fact that Leicester's fullbacks weren't providing what they had been providing. I'm amused about the dangers of it. I mean, I, I despaired. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, if you want to read some of Tom's work, then head to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where at the moment, I think I'm right in saying that you can get a subscription for £1 a month. Is that right, Alex? Yes. Probably. Yes. yes. Your guess is as good as mine. It's an excellent score. deal. Uh, yeah. Go Whatever it a- is, it'll be value for money. I'm, there you I'm go. confident that, that's, to say that. That's, that's kind of what Joe would say if he was here. Um, yeah. So, okay, fantastic. Go and do that. Take advantage of that offer. And here we go with the podcast. Okay, Alex, where are we starting? 
Which game are we starting with? Which theme are we going to dabble in? I think we can start with with a sort of an overarching idea, which is that the two games that I watched most intently over the weekend uh, were the Manchester United and Chelsea game and Wolves and Newcastle. Uh, and I think what's really interesting about these games is that we saw teams that had very clear systems and very clear uh, attempts of uh, playing a particular sort of way against teams that still seem to be very much a work in progress. Um, this is a thing that I think is then you know, reflected out across other teams in the league. So, for example, we have... Arsenal, where Arteta is clearly trying to institute a style of play, which we've discussed in, in State of the Club. Uh, and yet, you know, their numbers are quite poor. They didn't do particularly well against Leicester. So w what we're looking at here is in this weird season, I think, of, of flux and odd permutations and congested fixtures and an overly long transfer window and all of this stuff, we're seeing managers really wrestling with... Uh, adaptability and flexibility versus adherence to a system. Um, I think a good example again of that is is Southampton, who obviously won uh, against Everton and broke their unbeaten record. Ralph Hasenhutl is very much a systems manager. He's a guy who's come in, tried to institute a style of play. The club have you know stuck with him as that went through teething problems, and now Southampton are really uh, kind of hitting their stride and playing well. So. This this is the thing that I think we should uh, we should delve into today. Yeah, it's really interesting because interesting to bring up Southampton because to me that's a side with uh, a vision and uh, a word we're not supposed to use, but philosophy. Um, so there's this central idea which players um, are adapted around or imported to to realise. Whereas with Chelsea, it feels like that the ideology, the vision, is still very much under discussion. Um, it's sort of, we've got these players, um, they're very talented, let's see what we can do with them. They're not actually being, they're not being slotted into uh, pre-carved um, holes. I mean, I, I don't know if that's right, but that's how it feels when I watch Chelsea at the moment. Yeah, I, I think that a really good example for that, for example, is, is, is Timo Werner. So yeah. Timo Werner is a player of undoubted ability. Um, he's a very, very good striker. He also plays well coming in off the left. Uh, he's quick. He's a good goal scorer. But consistently, when he excelled, he excelled playing alongside somebody else in the striking role, Yusuf Poulsen particularly uh, at Leipzig. So Chelsea have gone and bought arguably one of you know the world's up and coming forwards, but they're refusing to play him in the system in which he performed so well to garner that reputation and develop as a player. I, I think Chelsea are a, a very good example where I guess the difference really is is flexibility versus inconsistency. You know, if you look at at someone like Hasenhutl or Klopp, where there is an overarching identity to that team and the system of play, there will always be tweaks and changes. You know, you'll play a slightly higher line or a slightly deeper line. You'll attack particular areas of the opposition. You know, it's it's not like those teams are utterly rigid in in the way that they approach every fixture. But at the same time, you more or less know what's going to happen and what's going to be attempted. Whereas Chelsea haven't even nailed down, really, whether they prefer playing with a back four or a back three. They haven't nailed down the, the best way to balance that midfield. They've let Barkley go out on loan, who's excelling for Aston Villa, but 
but still with that midfield with players like Kovacic, Kante, Jorginho, um, Mount who can play deeper, you know, there doesn't seem to be a sense of this is our best, this is our best double pivot or this is our best midfield three and this is how we're going to construct everything else around it. And it's very difficult to say whether that's because, you know, Lampard is is not up to it yet. <laughs> I'm very kind of wary now of, of of criticizing managers, particularly because of the flack that we get whenever we bring up Solskjaer. And actually, I, I would excuse Solskjaer slightly from this conversation um, because I think I think he is he's starting to develop more of an identity at Manchester United as a counter-attacking team, and maybe we'll we'll come back to that. But that Chelsea side just doesn't seem to have a vision behind it. It doesn't seem to have a pattern of play. There's 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 a collection of fantastic individuals there, but there's a there's a real lack of clarity about how to get the best from them. The, the, the Chelsea thing's funny because I, I I have a little bit of sympathy for Lampard because one of the perils of big club management, um, and probably um, particularly at Chelsea, is that they do periodically have these summers where they go and spend a lot of money on top-class players, perhaps not to quite the extent that they did this summer. But it strikes me that if you look at the attacking part of that side, so you've got the three marquee players, Ziyech, Werner and Harvard. With the exception of Ziyech, who obviously came from, from Ajax, you have players there who had systems which were, in one way or another, kind of not built around them, um, but adapted to their strengths. Um, and it seems to me that if you if you take a couple of those players at the same time and try and embed them into the same side... Problem one is that they're kind of they're kind of unused to being on the other side of the adaption. So that they're, they're they're not used to being. Like for example, Harvard at Leverkusen is not someone that you'd say um, is adapting around the abilities of other players because that system certainly towards the end seemed to be built to accommodate what he was good at. Um, certainly in in, his, in the positions he took up. Um, Werner not quite the same because Leipzig were very much a system side but you felt like he was always used in a way which utilised his strengths like even to the point where I was in the stadium for his performance in the Champions League against Spurs and he moved around the pitch and always 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 seemed to be in position to exploit whatever space the Tottenham defence was leaving at Chelsea this feels like a kind of continuous experimentation. And so in a way, even if you were Frank Lampard, and even if you had your belief system and um, there was a definitive idea of what you're working towards, you're going to have this problem just because um, there's so much flux occurring at the same time. And, and it creates this situation where, well, you spent £250 million, so really you should be top of the league. And if you're not, that's because you're a failure. And also look at your lack of experience and your CV and you've only done a season at Derby and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really actually, I'm not poison chalice because I don't think we can quite spin 250 million pounds of spending as a negative, but it's difficult. I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think I think the issue that, that you have with that is where the recruitment of marquee players is, is sort of the pursuit in and of itself. It's a signal of ambition. It's a signal of, of spending capability. And let's not forget that Chelsea had a lot of money set aside after that period where they they couldn't be active in the transfer market because of the ban. Um, what's odd, I think, is that the, the thing that was most refreshing and interesting about Lampard when he took over the Chelsea job was bringing in these younger players, people like Mount, Tamori, Gilmore, and and really making use of them, um, you know, Pulisic had a fantastic season uh, under Lampard in in that first um, season. 
with the influx of these big players that that signal, you know, Chelsea's atten- intent to to challenge for the league title or do well in Europe or, or whatever it is that they're trying to signal, it may just be, you know, we're still one of the big boys um, because obviously, you know, the, the the league table and the big six are now not necessarily reflective of one another. Um, you suddenly get a a situation where the one thing that had appeared to be that manager's philosophy is now in doubt. And that's, you know, Werner and Havertz are both young players, but but they're not, you know, they're not Chelsea-grown young players. Um, and you then suddenly have this competition for places, which is forcing out some of those other guys, um, you know, again, with the recruitment of Thiago Silva, Tamori, who is exceptional, has hardly played, and was even talked about as as going out on loan. You know, the one guy apart from Mount, really, who's come in and, and properly cemented his place is Rhys James. And even he had a couple of games out of the out of the team recently. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, I think he's he's probably been he's probably been Chelsea's most interesting player of the season so far, and and I think he performed ably for England as well. But it, you know, the, the the problem that you then have is. How do we integrate these new players? How do we, you know, as a manager, how do you take on board the direction that the the the, the board of the club is giving you by giving you these players and giving you this money to spend, and also find a system on the pitch that actually works? And I think you're absolutely right in that with Havertz, particularly, you can see that that Leverkusen team was was constructed in order to facilitate the creation of space for him. You know, he excels in in between the lines, moving into the half spaces, making these late runs from deep. And Kevin Folland, who he played alongside at Leverkusen, was the guy who dragged defenders this way and that way and, and made that space for him. So, you know, it, you you kind of, if you're picking these players up out of teams where they are the, the fulcrum of what happens, um, or like with Werner, you know they're they're working in a in a partnership in attack, which is again you know, developed in order to maximise what they're good at. You have a massive issue. Um, I think you can contrast this, for example, with Wolves, who who we watched at the weekend as well, where you know, Pudence, Neto have come into that first team squad, um, and and straight away they they click in in the roles that they're in. I mean there are there are other issues with Wolves um in terms of you know is the system and and the lack of one or two star players possibly what's what's sealing sealing them. That's that's a terrible I opinion. I approve it. I approve it. No no okay. go for it. Putting a ceiling on what they can achieve. But what you can see with Wolves is the way that they've recruited they are buying players for the system. Um, again, you can look at the the persistent use of Che Adams by Hasenhutl, who I have stuck by in my fantasy Premier League team, and he's finally got me some points. Um, but again, Adams is not being dropped there because what he does for the team otherwise is as important as his ability to create or score goals. And so, you know, you can you can see how how systems based teams recruit for the system and persist with players that are recruited for the system and that works you know if if you're Chelsea arguably before you drop 250 million pounds on players you look at how you want to play (laughs) and and I and I get that 
you know, the the transitions between a back four and, and a back three can be helpful on a game-to-game basis sometimes. Um, arguably, if you're a weaker team, maybe like a Brighton, for example, you know, it makes more sense to, to try and match up what the opposition are doing. But if you're a team like Chelsea, I would suggest you should know what your best system is and you should be drilling your players in that and you should be acquiring players who will fit into and enhance that system rather than buying players because they're really, really good and then trying to figure out what to do with them. Okay, let's take a little bit of a break and then we're going to come back and talk about Wolves. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're back and we're going to talk about Wolves. So what's interesting there is that I see, and I don't know if you agree with me, I see a a really talented team um, with a lot of players that are capable of uh, hurting teams in a lot of different ways. But it seems that they lack the gear changes to be truly dominant in situations where they should be. Like, I feel like they're a side who are at their very, very best when they're not expected to win. And the obvious reason for that is the best part of their game is their counterattack. But at the same time, when, when they when they outmatch teams, and obviously they're, they're coming off a, that disappointing draw with Newcastle, which was very, very similar to um, the draw they had at Molyneux last season. Again, 1-1, um, different sequence of scoring, but still um, really disappointing. I wonder, I was having a conversation with someone on, on Twitter about this, and we kind of came to the consensus that they could really do with some sort of advanced playmaker, someone who, or at the very least, like a true box-to-box type um, who added an extra body and an extra set of abilities in the attacking third. What what do you think? Because it's like they have this pace out wide. They have players that can beat defenders in wide positions. They have some of the best midfielders in the country, in my opinion. They have one of the best centre forwards in the country. Um, and they have the, also these interesting players. You mentioned Neto before we, we um, went to our, to our break. Really interesting. Uh, Podence I like. I think he's fascinating in a kind of, almost like a throwback way, given the ball anywhere in the pitch and he'll do something destructive with it. What would you add to that side? It's really hard, isn't it? I, yeah. I think, I mean, I, I agree with everything that you've said. Um, I do like the way that... <laughs> When Podence runs, he always seems to be puffing his cheeks out, <laughs> which <laughs> which struck me when I was watching that game as, as slightly odd. Um, and yes, I, I mean, in Jimenez, I think they've they've got the the best striker, and I, I've said this before, they've got the best striker outside of, of the big six clubs. I think Dendonka, to a degree, is that player you're describing. I think he does have the ability to get forwards. He's not He's not a proper box-to-box midfielder in the sense that he doesn't often, I think, appear actually in the opposition box, but he certainly takes up good positions around it. Um, and he's a he's a very good facilitator from, you know, if you're taking a, a deeper pass from Neves or from Cody centrally, then Dendonka is often the guy who's spreading it out wide and then pushing forwards. But I, I do think, you know, in that game against Newcastle, Newcastle were, were playing a formation that in a mid-block looked very much like a, a 5-3-2, but I think on paper was sort of a 
something. <laughs> it was very, it was very difficult. And I, arguably, Wilson wasn't even playing as a striker in that game. Um, you, you, you know what it reminded me of is in um, in early editions of Championship Manager, like when you would get a player sent off, and you would put all of your players behind the ball in a kind of um, five five, um, and you would just <laughs> like you would just not put a strike on the pitch and you would just stack your midfield. Cause, because even like I agree, Wilson Connor wasn't playing as a forward. He was playing almost like as a sort of someone who just happened to be ahead of the midfield. Um, And it was, it was very, very negative, which is like, it's like playing against a, um, a low block is an excuse for not winning a game. I, I completely accept that. But at the same time, Wolves have the power to, run through Newcastle to be blunt I mean that they're, they're too good to be to they be... Sh- yeah they should have um but I think I think you're right that the, the maybe what they lack is is somebody that can play in tight spaces where you know we we, we did a video on on low blocks recently um which snuck in a raccoon reference that I was particularly pleased about um and and one of the er- editorial uh, editorial mechanics of Tifo that <laughs> it's it's because it was it was so fleeting that I don't so not sure so, if so right for it. the uh, for the script <laughs> yeah uh, but you know I think you you can you can try and exploit set pieces you can try and and shoot from from range and obviously Wolves are particularly adept at shooting from outside the area with with Neves especially but if you can't do those things. And it's harder to play wide. And there were some actually some quite cogent comments underneath the video about the difference between playing against uh, a back four low block and a back five low block, which we didn't address in the video. Um, and and it is harder because because one of the main ways of, of beating a back four low block is to exploit the wide areas. And Wolves are really good at that because... They've got the trickery of pedence, or they've got the 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 pace uh, and the increased control and end product of Triore, so that works fine for them. But if you stuff up the wide spaces as well, uh, and you bring back your wide midfielders to double up with wing backs, and and you can still congest the central area because you've got three defenders and, and two midfielders, then it becomes really really hard. And what you need is is a player who is taking up positions between the lines now sometimes for Wolves Jimenez does that quite ably but when he does that it generally is when Wolves are on the counter-attack and Jimenez is dropping deep to receive a long pass from Cody particularly or from Neves and then he's feeding it out wide and making his run forwards so it's not really working between the lines in quite the way that I mean that you'd have to do against a low block and and they don't have that player yeah, you know, maybe the answer is is to play Pedence in a more central role, but then you've either got to have your left wing back pushing much, much higher, which in this game was Roman uh Saiz, who is, you know, he's not a wing back. He filled in ably, but yeah, he's he's generally speaking a a, a defender or even a defensive midfielder. Um or you've got to adjust your system. And and Wolves aren't going to adjust their system. So you know, it's it's tricky for them when they're when they're confronted with that sort of thing, and and often those are the sorts of players. You know, the the players that can drop off, that can produce something in tight spaces. Um, I, talking to Adonis before we started recording about about Arsenal's inability to break down Leicester's low block. 
you know, the player who is most adept at operating in tight spaces and feeding little passes and, and, and working quickly in those areas that are congested is Meza Ozil. And, and he, you know, he wasn't, he's not in the squad. So. He's doing the minute by minute. He's, he's the highest paid minute by minute commentator or a live blogger <laughs> in the country at the moment. He's, uh, that was slightly weird, wasn't it? It's novel. It's like, um, if I was being cynical, I'd say it's a really interesting little waypoint in um, football's relationship with social media uh, because it's kind of what happens after the fallout. Because ordinarily, like you get a player that's you get a player that's bombed out and he goes and trains with the, the under twenty threes or something, and you never hear from him again, or he he appears in like articles snarking about what people earn without doing anything. Now, this is kind of the first time that I know that a player is kind of taken control of public perception around him in that situation yeah. um it's really interesting it's really smart because you know come the end of the year Mesut Ozil is going to be um a free agent um in what nine months time um and he's going to be finding a new club and I suppose also there's a question of legacy like if the, the, the bulk of his career has now happened uh at Arsenal this is this is him you know, controlling his relationship with fans. And I, I, I think it's quite smart. I mean, it's easy for me to look on and laugh, um, you know, being of uh, a Tottenham persuasion. But it's <laughs> it's more and more players will do this uh, because they have the facility to employ people to do it on their behalf or to advise them. Or So it's fascinating. I know we're, we're kind of getting off topic. But what, what, something I want to go back to. So the, the potence in, in a more central role, I think, is, is, a, is a really good call because... When I think about uh, when I think about the answer to congested spaces and the key to unlocking them, I think of a kind of Aral Ortega type player. Um, and obviously, you can't just find one one of those anywhere. But it's the set of abilities that I like. So, someone that's comfortable going beyond the nine uh, and sort of playing in the space behind a defence, but also someone that has the technical ability to receive a pass in uh, a congested area. So maybe in that sort of 10-yard corridor in front of a penalty box where a back five is sitting, uh, and then to do something productive with the ball with a second touch. And there's very few players around who can actually do that. Ozil is obviously one of them at, at Arsenal. Yeah. But Podence could be that guy, I think. If you if you developed the kind of, uh, a sort of a version of the relationship that Jimenez had with Diogo Jota, who I think mm -hmm. is a, a super player and is going to be a big miss for them, will, will prove to be by the end of the season you could kind of cultivate a similar dynamic, but one which is built around a, a, a slightly more technical player. Because I think Podence is that guy. He's someone that, he's, he's a little bit more old-fashioned. I realise that we've, we're kind of developing a Podence fetish. We're like, Ian Pervader <laughs> has become our favourite player at TIFO for some reason, because we all happen to watch that Leeds game at the same time. But I, I think that's a, that's an interesting, in, in lieu of being able to actually go out on, into the transfer market and find that guy in January, I think that's maybe something that you could see going forward. I'd certainly like to see it. And and when Wolves didn't play a three four three last season, they played a three five two, and they played Jota off Jimenez. So, you know, you sacrifice some of the attacking drive in the wide areas, and obviously, you know, they've they've lost Doherty to Spurs, who was such an integral part of of that thrust down the right hand side, which compensated if Traore wasn't playing. Um, but yeah, I mean that that makes sense. You. What's interesting is as the disparity between between clubs grows in in terms of finance and in terms of of how they can acquire players. Increasingly, there will be a, a division between some. I, I think 
I think the Premier League will look like, you know, there'll, there'll be some teams who pretty much always play a low block. There'll be some teams who always play their system irrespective, like a Southampton, probably a Wolves, uh, and they'll either prosper or they won't. And then there'll be teams who are faced with low blocks and have to try and break them down. Um, and we've seen, for example, with, with Spurs, um, the ability of of someone like Kane to drop off and play between the lines. And, you know, Kane is is a fantastic playmaker as much as is a fantastic striker. You know, that that is a problem that teams are having to solve. And I think what's interesting is that that it, it may potentially signal a, a return to something approximating a kind of 4-2-3-1, where you have these two players who are almost interchangeable um who you know maybe one is slightly more of a playmaker in the 10 role and and the other one is slightly more of, of a default striker but if you look for example we we we've got a video coming out in the next couple of weeks about AC Milan which I've been um, researching and writing and Milan do this really well with Chalanoglu and Ibrahimovic because Ibrahimovic there's no doubt at all that he is a striker um, and he's, you know, he's still an excellent physical threat. He gets into the box, onto the end of crosses, and so on. But he has the touch and the control and the ability, technically, to pass the ball out of tight spaces. That means if he drops off and Chalunoglu pushes up and past him, you can still have the same kind of dynamic of one player ahead who is able to finish, and one player behind who is able to feed them. And those players can interchange based on where they need to be in order to meet the ball. And I think this is something that, you know, Spurs are solving it by having their players running in from wide and a player dropping off. But but this is the conundrum that, that big teams are going to have to solve. You know what's... I, I, just before we move on, the Ibrahimovic point is, 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 is fascinating because what's always missed about him in... Not with his goal scoring, but with his his pivot work, his um, facilitating, is that you don't have to play a particularly good ball to him for him to be able to do something with it, and I think that's something that gets missed. Like you, you, when you when you think of target man, uh, target men, target mans, Jesus, I should have more <laughs> coffee before we do this podcast. When you think of target men, you think of high balls, you think of knockdowns. I think the advantage with Ibrahimovic is that because he's such a, an agile and weirdly dexterous person, and I just mean him as a physical specimen, you can play a, a ball to him in pretty much any area where he roughly inhabits, and he can do something with him because his touch is so good. And also, you know, he can drag a he can drag a ball, a driven ball, um, down from I don't know five foot in the air. Now, yeah. there's very few players that. If you if you if you play the same ball into I don't know Ashley Barnes, um, I watched Bernie Spurs last night, so he's on my mind. Then what's he going to do with it? Well, he might take it down. He might um, he might be able to redirect it out to a channel. With someone like Ibrahimovic, if you've got players uh, around or running beyond him, he can do something productive with it, and he can do it without taking two or three touches first, which mm. makes a huge difference. If you even if even if you've got a back five around you. That makes a huge difference to the speed of the play, the accuracy of it. I feel like in a lot of cases, if you're playing with a single forward, which increasingly a lot of teams do now, you're always searching for that perfect ball, that perfect little combination to unlock a defence. And I think maybe that's one of the things with Wolves um, in that 
you kind of you need a scenario which is a little bit too perfect. There isn't quite enough ad libbing going on there, and that's not criticism of of Jimenez. It's more just a kind of with the AC Milan example, and you know, Kane is probably in this conversation as well, although he's not quite as sort of physically freakish as Ibrahimovic, of course. Without that player, things become a lot harder. That's absolutely right. I mean, Ibrahimovic set up a shot against Roma last night with basically a, a ball was driven in from deep towards him and he chested it back perfectly to Chalonoglu to, to volley it. Uh, it. It didn't go in, but it was, you know, that that ability to just do the thing which is which is unexpected partly, but also I think to, to be able to do that in concert with players gambling on the ability to do something unexpected. Um, and I think Kane very much is in that conversation. I think Kane's Kane's ability to uh, to dig a pass out of a tight situation is is something that's really really underappreciated. Somebody tweeted me last night actually uh, about this, and it's it's an interesting point that you make in in concert with Ibrahimovic. Is do we do we underestimate Kane's playmaking ability because because he looks like a striker because he's taller and he's competing for things in the air. And he's trying to, you know, like wrestle with centre backs and stuff. Which I know he's not quite as physical as Ibrahimovic, like you said. But are we almost more inclined to value someone's ability to 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 create because they look more like a creative player? I mean, Podence, yeah, is, without without question, Podence is small and he's tricky and he's got a hip swivel and he he looks like he should be a ten, right? Yeah. But but Kane doesn't and. The different uh, example suggested by this Twitter user, whose name I've forgotten, my apologies, was Wayne Rooney. Yeah, you know we were more comfortable taking Wayne Rooney as a, as a playmaker as well, or as somebody who could occupy that space because he's smaller and he's he looks more technical than Kane does. And I I think there's still I think there's still something very much in how the eye perceives certain players. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This, to me, this is the the Pablo Imar dynamic um, in that there are ideals for each position. You kind of want your centre halves to be six foot two and with shaven heads. You want your um, you want your defensive midfielders to kind of look the same thing. You want everyone to look like Nemanja Matic or Patrick Vieira. You know, physical players who can carry the ball, who enjoy a superiority physically and technically. And with Kane. I feel like it's a it's an Alan Shearer thing um, because Kane very neatly fits the sort of the ideal of uh, what an especially a British goal scorer should look like. He's a big guy. He's broad shouldered. He's not particularly quick, um, and his mechanics. If you watch him kick a ball, like in not on the TV. If you if you, uh, it's difficult for everybody at the moment. But um, next time everyone gets a chance to watch Harry Kane in, in a stadium. 
it's not particularly fluid. His his mechanics aren't well oiled. He looks like someone that is um, has honed his ability, even down to the way he strikes the ball, to the way he receives it, to um, you know the way he looks up before he plays a pass. These are everything is very deliberate with him, um, and I think that's absolutely right because you then have this situation where it becomes a little bit weird to um, attach him to kind of the more cerebral actions. So my, my, my favourite bit of Harry Kane football um, outside of goals and like match-changing moments happened at the Liberty Stadium. Um, and the press box there is quite low. And in this instance, he received the ball. Uh, it would have been a January 2018, I think, 2019, um, the season that Swansea got relegated. He received the ball on the near touchline next to uh, the press box. And um, it would have been probably about five yards inside the Swansea half. And he was immediately closed down by two or three Swansea defenders who had drifted to the near side to cover him, to close down and, and take away his space. With one touch, he got the ball out of his feet. With the next touch, he launched a 40-yard pass, which hit Deli Alley in stride around about the edge of the D. Um, and Ali went through, scored, and finished the game 2 up. And it's kind of that with Kane. It's just, it, was, it wasn't shocking because a lot of people, you know, if you watch Tottenham every week, if you watch him every week, this is what you come to expect. But it's still not what you associate with him. Um, and yet, these kind of little moments of spontaneity are absolutely crucial to his game. And, and it, I don't think it's specific to Kane. I don't think it's about British footballers or centre-forwards. I just think it's the way a lot of people look at football in that they have expectations about, you know, wingers should look like Ryan Giggs. That's how they should carry the ball, you know. Uh, or goalkeepers should all look like Thibaut Courtois rather than uh, Jorge Campos. You know, it's that kind of stuff that you... I think you have to get beyond that, your own kind of harmless little assumptions about you know, what makes a good footballer or a productive footballer in a certain position. You have to kind of defeat these little assumptions before you can kind of appreciate what a player is, I think. I, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, a, a, an example for me is Declan Rice, who is capable of some really nice passing um, without doubt. But there's a way that I, I... There are two things about Declan Rice that I can't get over. Uh, the first is that when he passes the ball, and this is more for England because I've watched him play for England more than I have for, for West Ham. When he plays for England, there are two things that, that strike me. The first is he doesn't move after passing the ball. And my expectation, possibly because of biases about how I want to see football played or because there are particular types of players that I admire, is that when a defensive midfielder particularly... You, you do have a lot of those biases. <laughs> yes, I'm sure I do. Um, but w when a defensive mid midfielder passes the ball, they should then be moving into space. I, personally, I believe that when a player passes the ball, they should almost always move, you know, even if it's to just drop back a little bit or to... But you're you're looking to escape you know, a, a cover shadow or you're looking to to make yourself available in a position where you weren't previously. And um, Rice seems weirdly static in a way that, that kind of sticks out to me enormously. I also think he has an odd technique when he kicks the ball short. His, his foot seems to sort of, it's hard to describe, it's like it kind of flips around the outside of the ball or something. He just doesn't look technically comfortable when he passes it short and again this is something that now and that you know i my my personality type is is such that i become 
fixated on certain things. Um, <laughs> so I, I find particular You're types acting, of <laughs> aud- auditory <laughs> stimulus really, uh, really distracting and, and difficult. Anybody who's ever eaten anywhere near me will know this. Um, but actually, but- actually, let's tell that story before you go any further, because I had no idea when this happened. So, oh, um, is this when we were recording State of the Club? Yeah, so um, we um, we went to record uh, Alex's segment of State of the Club a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I travelled uh, from Hamburg and um, got there, and I hadn't eaten, so I was really, really hungry, and I, I went to Pret and uh, grabbed, uh, I don't know, like granola or something. And, um, it was granola. It was it, granola. Yeah, I love remember exactly what it was. <laughs> and um, I was sat on the top level of the, the auditorium just eating what was kind of breakfast. And then Alex was just looking at me intently with this weird look of discomfort. And you were like, I, I, I just get really uncomfortable when, when it, and that's eat the around thing. me. It, it's, it's discomfort. It's not annoying. And it's not it's not eating. It's it's particular types of noise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And it, well, I, a, let me let me I mean, clarify I that point. I don't eat in an unusual way. No, like I, no, I, no, no. You, I, that that kind of makes it sound like fair. Yeah, no, you're okay. you're not. You're 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 a very good eater. It's just, my my there's... wife is giggling in the background. <laughs> <laughs> um, She's probably, I don't think she's laughing at one or other of us. I think just both the conversation. Just, just both. So my my point being that this is a persistent issue that I face on a daily basis. Not just the eating thing. Just just generally. Yeah. And I now cannot watch Declan Rice without anticipating these things that will annoy me about him uh and it's very it's very unhelpful to try and dispassionately analyze stuff if you're if you're just waiting to be disappointed by somebody's weird kicking motion or their inability to move after making a pass um but it but it does feed into this idea that i think you're you're right with that we have we have expectations of what certain types of players should be doing or what a certain thing ought to look like. And I think, you know, when Harry Kane plays a long pass, there's something really aesthetically pleasing about the way that happens, that, you know, that the, the angles and the striking of the ball. And it, it just looks right to me. And Declan Rice doesn't. <laughs> I didn't mean to turn that into a Declan Rice uh, criticism session but it's yeah I think it feeds into your broader point this is this is interesting thing so um, a while back um, we had um, Jonathan Norcroft from the Sunday Times on the pod I think about two years ago now just talking about his um, the book he wrote which accompanied um, his uh, his work at the World Cup in 2018 and he was talking about um, he, he he covered the uh, England game with Colombia which went to penalties and he was talking about the way in which professional footballers kick footballs, the actual mechanics of it, and talking about the different noises it makes and, and sort of how it's completely different to a lot of the things that you associate with Sunday football, amateur football, semi-pro, whatever. And he's absolutely right. It's one of my favourite passages of, of, of uh, one of the books I've read recently. And uh, so if anyone um, if anyone wants to read it, it's, uh, it's called Darts and Deadlines with Delhi, or it might be Deadlines and Darts with Delhi. But do do find it because I, I know it's a little bit outdated because it's about the World Cup. But there's some fantastic passages in there, some really great first person stuff. And uh, Johnny's a lovely bloke as well. So um, go, and, go and buy his book. Let us end there. This is always the bit that I struggle with because Joe's able to ad lib his way into kind of an awkward silence, which I'm not. I feel the need to, you know, fill silences. Alex, uh, we're having a podcast with someone from Mold. That's right. 
Would you like yes. to describe what that's going to be? Yeah, so we're going to be, or I'm going to be talking to Eric Laurie, uh, who is the head of Academy Performance Analysis uh, and also a coach at Mould. And we'll be recording that on Friday, so that'll be out uh, the following week. I get very confused between it, when we do stuff and when it goes out. but Yeah, it'll be out on Tuesday. It'll be so, out at some point in the near future. The near um, future. So we'll... Yeah, we'll be talking about um, the particular challenges of doing performance analysis at academy level, uh, player development, uh, and general interesting stuff behind the scenes at a football club. Super nerdy, super Alex. So uh, tune in yes. for that one. And we will leave you with an awkward little goodbye. Goodbye. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.